This is Stephen Schramm of Audio Chimera, a subversive podcast taking refuge in the sanctuary of allegory about the fragility of memory. This is episode number 38, Behind the Scenes in AM Radio. In a previous episode, number 16, I mentioned a little bit about my experiences as an AM DJ. I glossed over it a bit, and I'd like to take this opportunity to go a little deeper into that strangely carpeted sound booth of yesteryear. My college radio station manager encouraged us all to get FCC licenses, and our one communication professor even drove us to Baltimore so we could take the exam for the license and for the broadcast endorsement. Soon after that, I got my nice salmon-colored license suitable for framing. The broadcast endorsement meant that we were allowed to fiddle with more electronics. For the college FM station that broadcasts directly or line of sight to everyone's radios within a certain distance, it didn't really matter. It became more important in the AM world where signals would start to clash, like gangs after dark, and you'd have to make an adjustment. My AM station would go directional at dusk, and I often had to push buttons on the box connected to the transmitter to make that happen. Everyone thinks about DJs playing music and talking a little bit, and maybe even giving a bit of news. A major part of what I did as a not full-time DJ was play a lot of tapes, basically just letting them run, maybe putting commercials in, or switching tapes along the way, but mostly just sitting and listening for cues. One of the longest sitting times was, of course, the Baltimore Orioles baseball games. And this is Steve Strum reminding you that the Orioles game with the Toronto Blue Jays is starting at 7.30 with the Orioles pregame show starting in about three minutes. So don't go away from 1350 WZIX. Sometimes they would go into extra innings and I would just have to wait until the games were finished. Or, God forbid, there would be a rain delay. In case you haven't heard, the Orioles game has been delayed and the broadcast from the Orioles stadium will resume at 7.45 and the game will begin at 7.50. And Chuck Thompson, the commentator for the Orioles game, says he does see sun coming uh, soon over the stadium, so there should be a game this evening. However, when a team struck out, I had to go into action to insert the commercials. Then sometimes the commercials ended and the announcers didn't come right back on, so I had a sound effect of a crowd to fill in. Also occasionally, when they would mention my station, WZIX, I would turn it up so it sounded like the crowd was cheering for us. <laughs> Sunday mornings were all about public service programming. Features. WZIX York. This is Steve Schramm of WZIX, and we've been invited to one of the most prestigious parties in Los Angeles in years. This party is to welcome back one of the world's foremost entertainers. His name is Elton John, and for the next hour, we'll hear from Elton and his producer, Clive Franks, on words and music right here on WZIX. And, of course, religious programming. The major religious show was called the KLU Hour. KLU stood for Keep Looking Up. It always began with the announcer saying, Welcome to the KLU Hour, an hour of the Sunday morning worship service of whatever church it was. I always wondered what a church needed with a warship. At one point, I did the midnight to 6 a.m. shift, which for a night person was a great shift until about 4 a.m. 
To keep myself awake for the first several hours, I prepared for Shrum's Super Segway, where I found three songs on the same theme. I would throw those out about 3.10 a.m. No one ever said whether they liked it or not, but I continued to do it for a while, more to amuse myself than anyone else. So that was good for the 3 o'clock hour. Then, even this confirmed keeper of vampire hours began to flag. By the time I reached 5 a.m., even that happy man who always began and ended his fun facts about the Keystone State with, It's a beautiful day in Pennsylvania, couldn't amuse me. Two of the longer-form shows that I played tapes for were the Oldies Show on the Big Z Oldie Explosion, that's Sunday nights from 6 till 9, and the Jazz Show. The first was more labor-intensive. Start tape one, stop it to insert commercials, then restart it. When tape one ran out, play commercials, then start tape two, already queued up. Then switch out tape one for three, and repeat. It required using push buttons on a panel and some walking back and forth between control room and studio, which were adjacent. After I did it the first night, the oldies DJ, who was also the station's engineer, congratulated me on a great job, telling me that no one else had ever been able to do it completely correctly the first time through. I couldn't believe that. It wasn't rocket science. The other show was the Sunday Night Jazz Show. This is Rit, and this is Jazz. Rit worked at a local electronics appliance store, Saul Kessler's on George Street, that also sold albums and 45s. As it turns out, my friend Ed would later work in that very same building when it was converted into the headquarters for Ampersand Corporation, makers of Branch Banker software. At the time, Saul Kessler's was within a short walking distance of where my cousin and I lived, so it was easy to go there to snatch up the latest hits. Red would sit behind the counter and check out our purchases. Our first real encounter with a black man in a position of some authority. So years later, at the radio station, I would encounter him again, in a manner of speaking. I would find the two reel-to-reel jazz show tapes for the week in my mailbox. I'd bring them into the studio, load one on one reel-to-reel machine in the studio, and the other on the second. I'd play the first, then the second. All the ads were done by Ritt for his store. He would also spend a long time talking about the personnel of each jazz song in that cool, laid-back jazz enthusiast tone he had. Uh, on bass, such as on drums. Unfortunately, Ritt only had two reel-to-reel tapes. So after I played them and put them back in his mailbox, he'd pick them up and record over the previous show. In those days, we had a device called a degausser. It was like an iron for recording tape. You'd hold it against the reel, push the button, and listen to it buzz while you moved it around the reel, erasing every last wrinkle from the recorded iron filings. I don't think he ever used that. And then, as the tapes began to get older, they began to stretch, and they would bounce as they moved through the tape transport. Cool jazz began to sound like the wobbly synths we would soon be hearing a few years later in 80s pop music. The wobbling got so bad that one night an irate listener called. He seemed surprised to be talking to a white guy. Let me talk to Rit, he said. And in a flashback moment to the movie American Graffiti, when Richard Dreyfus asks to talk to the Wolfman, and the man in the studio, sucking on a melting popsicle, informs him he's not there by saying, The man's on tape. I said pretty much the same thing. 
There was a pause, and the caller said, That's bull****. The music sounds like I told him I would pass the comment on. And I did, to Rit and to the program director. And I think the next week, the same tapes came back into my mailbox. And speaking of program directors, I always laugh at that episode of WKRP in Cincinnati when the book arrives and everyone freaks out. That was the Arbitron Ratings book. They came out twice a year, and often, if the numbers were not what the owners wanted, well, sometimes I ran the Sunday night shows, signed off, went home, and then when I came in the next day, I was greeted by a brand new program director with a brand new format. We'd been doing middle of the road, but now we're doing teen top 40. And when the next book came out, we were filling 10 to 12 minutes every half hour with disco singles. Luckily, there was always a cheat sheet on the wall to follow the current format. The best example of poor formatting was the time we played lots of A's, top hits, B's, up-and-coming hits, and C's, recently demoted hits. One week, there was only one record in the C category, so we played it once every half hour. It actually got more airplay than some of the A-list top hits. For me, the strangest and more fun aspect of being a DJ was taking calls from listeners. Note that this does not include calls during the Three Mile Island accident. Listen to episode number 16 for more information there, including a mention of Doris, who always requested Bad Girls by Donna Summer. And of course, when I say listeners, I mean people who are actually listening to the station. Sometimes, especially during the disco era, people would call in requests. One time the voice said, Could you play Peaches and Herbs Reunited? I got this request often, so I assumed people were being paid to drive up airplay on it. But in this case, my reply was, Actually, I'm playing it right now. And I was. My favorite caller, besides bad girl Doris, was Margaret. She sounded like a teenage girl who was going through a lot of family angst and sought refuge by listening to the radio. As often as she called, I assumed she had a crush on me, and when I was running Orioles games, I had a lot of time on my hands to talk with her. I would put her on hold, insert the commercials, and then go back to her. We must have talked for hours during my time as a DJ. And this was even stranger because she seemed to be from Lancaster, and that would have been a long-distance call back then. And of course, to this day, I can't help but wonder what she looked like. We have the same situation now with our online presences. Someone can say they're a 16-year-old girl, but until you hear or see them, you can't necessarily believe them. I talked to Margaret, a lot, and so I think she was who she said she was. Which reminds me, the other DJs would often tell of women calling them up and suggesting they meet. They warned me against ever doing this, because in their macho, misogynist way of thinking, the woman might turn out to be unattractive. What I found funny about this was that these guys were certainly, as they say, no prizes themselves. An enthralled listener might be surprised to find the one guy was short, with very angular, almost rodent-like features, and the other was heavyset with a greasy-looking perm and thick glasses. I would suspect women who fell in love with their deep, masculine voices would have said on meeting them, Oh no, go away. I'm waiting for this DJ. 
that reaction might unkink the old perm. Now, while writing this, I suddenly remembered one time getting a call from a woman who then attempted to lure me into having phone sex with her while I was on the air. I don't know what suddenly prompted this memory, but she was certainly pushing for my responses, both verbal and physical. I responded with what might be called stage directions, telling her what I was doing, but without actually doing them. I seem to remember telling her at one point that I wanted to, quote, screw her eyes out, unquote, but don't think I included my thought with a screwdriver. Anything you want to hear more about from this podcast? I can elaborate. Just send your request to stephenschramm at musifier.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-C-H-R-U-M at musifier, M-U-S-O-F-Y-R.com. Or leave a message at 724-835-4074, and I'll see what I can do. I receive no cash for products I mentioned, but please feel free to throw money at me to advertise here. For more information on my works, check out my website, musifier.com. For written works, search for me on Smashwords as Stephen Schramm or Musifier, or find me on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. This is Stephen Schramm. Thanks for listening to Audio Chimera. <laughs>